And so with that said, will you open up your Bibles? There's a Bible in the chairs in front of you if, if you don't have one. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to continue in our series about the church in 1 Corinthians. If you borrow a Bible, it just happens to be the same page numbers as mine. It's page 956. My old eyes can't tell. All right. So we're into number 6 of 10. Ashley, can you start my timer, please? Uh, we're in issue 6 of 10. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. What is really important to this is that 1 Corinthians is the first letter from Paul to the Corinthians that we have in the Bible, but it's not his first letter. It's not his first conversation with them. Paul, about five years earlier than this, began this church. He was in Corinth. He led the first people to Jesus. He gathered them together, discipled an elder or two, and handed off to them, and then keeps a correspondence going, keeps some friendships there. Some have come to visit him. He is currently, while writing this, he's pastoring a church in Ephesus, which is across a small body of water. And he stays in relationship with this church because his heart for them is that he loves them and he wants to care for them. And that the, the local church is really the way that the gospel stays active on earth, right? That it's, it's not the job of some superhero leader, some famous person to keep the gospel active. It's, it's the local church. And so he cares that the church in Corinth is established and grounded. And so in 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, it's at least his second letter to them. He's dealing with 10 issues that they're having in their local church. And really an overarching theme is unity and purity. And that the, the unity of the church and the purity of the church is important for its relationship to one another and its witness in the world. And so today is a, a one that's probably the most, <clears throat> the furthest from our culture. And so Paul is going to be talking to them about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Again, not something we have likely dealt with unless you have traveled outside the country. For the most part, not something we do day to day, right? So let me set the stage. In Corinth, uh, emperor worship or cult worship of the Roman Caesar was very common, but they were also a polytheistic culture, meaning they worshiped all kinds of deities or gods or idols, right? And so <clears throat> both in Greek culture and Roman culture, they worshiped many things, right? And so the cities were built around their worship, and, and the places you would go maybe for a wedding or for a banquet or a birthday party, might be a temple that was devoted to another idol. And the, and the only parallel we really have <clears throat> is how we do things here. We do a wedding here, and when we do a wedding, uh, wedding, I think yours is the last one I did here, maybe. Anyhow, a bunch of people who don't go to the church, come, right? And then <clears throat> you guys did a baby shower here, right? Baby shower, a bunch of people come. Okay, so we use the building. This is Really, this is the church's building. The building's not the church. The people are the church, right? The building belongs to you. And so we use it as a church, right? We, we use it for our community here, the members that belong here. And so when we do that, a lot of times people from the outside will come in and do whatever it is we're doing. Well, same idea existed, except you would go to an idol temple or a temple to Caesar or a temple in, uh, I know for sure, in Ephesus is built around Artemis worship or Diana worship. So you might go there for a banquet, a meal, a wedding, a something. And outside the temple, they would sacrifice animals to that particular God. When I say God, I'm lowercase g, right? Not God, not the true God, but they would sacrifice. And so when they would do that, they would offer a part of it as a sacrifice, and then the rest of the meat often got sold in the marketplace or used at these banquets. And so meat sacrificed to an idol was a common thing. And then people would also attend a wedding there or a birthday party there. And it was normal, just like people will come here for those kind of things. Non-Christians will come here for a wedding or a funeral or whatever, right? Same idea, but in Corinth, see, everybody there was coming out of idol worship to Christianity. And Christianity proclaims that there is one true God who created everything, 
right? And that you worship him alone. And so in that, some of the younger Christians were struggling with, well, can I go in that building? Can I eat this meat? What can I do here? Where can I participate? And it's called an issue of conscience. Now, I'll give you an example. I'm going to give you one you wouldn't expect. So let me ask you this. So if a, an adult who's a Christian is dating, are they allowed to kiss? Now, I know most of you immediately said yes, right? Okay. It's actually an issue of conscience. Now, we know how we talk about, how we talk about, excuse me, how we talk about sin. And we know there's some clear lines, okay, if you go over here, you're in sin, if you're back here, you're not. But the Bible's a little, a little more, uh, a little stronger than that. About six times in Song of Solomon, Solomon uses the language of do not arouse or awaken love before it's time. <clears throat> he doesn't say just don't do this. He says, hey, listen, there's a lot of things that lead that direction. Do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. So it's a little grayer. Where should the boundaries be, right? And so if you're dating and you're Christians, you probably set some parameters around what is and is not okay for your dating relationship. Hopefully that's what you do. And what we tend to do is set the boundary way out here right before sin, right? And so we will often come flying towards our boundary, sliding to a stop, hoping we don't cross it, right? Fair? Well, if we set our boundaries way back here, even when our boundaries are a little blurry, we're not down here, right? And so a lot of times Christian couples would say, hey, listen, I know our struggles. Let's just pull the boundaries way back here. Not because it's a rule, because it's smarter. And if we have a strong view of sin and, and what that looks like, then we want to stay far away from sin, not close to sin. Does that make sense? So kissing becomes an issue of conscience, right? I don't mean a little peck on the cheek, but you know, not, how, not the way you kiss your mom. You know what I'm talking about. And so it becomes an issue of conscience. And if you do, we need to go back to 1 Corinthians 5. That's how you kiss your mom. Anyhow, that's another story. Okay, so, <clears throat> so let's put this on the screen. An issue of conscience. Issues of conscience are areas that are biblically allowed, but may lead to sin in yourself or others. Paul answers with truth defined today, meaning biblically accurate. Truth could be factually accurate, mathematically accurate. Today, we're talking about biblically correct, all right? And love, and in this case, we're going to talk about love is defined by putting others before yourself, okay? So putting others before yourself. That'll be the definition we use as love today. Love means a lot of things. That's what we're talking about today, all right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, notice the quotations, all of us possess knowledge. This quote-unquote knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So again, Paul has been writing back and forth, and he's taking some of the things they wrote, and he's quoting them back to them. We, looked at, we saw this last week as well. And he says, and he quotes them as, you know, all of us possess knowledge. Now, he's really writing to a segment of that church. And so if the whole church is like this, there's a certain segment that have certain different issues, right? And he's writing to those who feel like they're more mature in their faith. Now, they may or may not be. They're not acting like it in this moment. So I know that all of us possess knowledge, is what he's saying, right? I know you understand what may be true or false. But this, and then he quotes knowledge. It's like when we air quote stuff, which is really obnoxious, and I try not to do that. But this knowledge, he says, puffs up. See, we always use that verse as if Paul is teaching the fact that knowledge puffs up. Well, knowledge is good. In fact, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, right? Knowledge is good, but some knowledge, if it just makes you arrogant, not so much. It's not the knowledge's fault, it's the sin, right? So the arrogance or the pride is the sin. That's what he's talking about. He says, your knowledge, what you think you know to be true, is puffing you up. It's making you arrogant. So let's read that again, starting verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now remember back to week one, when they were following different teachers, 
right? And it was dividing them. And I said, the, the modern-day version of that is, well, I think this, right? That oftentimes informs the church, or I feel this way, allowing that to shape things, when really we need Scripture to shape how we are, how we live, how we act as a church. And so he's kind of bringing us back to that idea of that knowledge. They feel like they have this knowledge, but notice what he's contrasting with. Their knowledge that they're using in a prideful way, or in, and I'm going to say that a little differently, in a selfish way, which we'll see in a minute, versus love, which today we're defining as putting others before ourselves. So it's a bit about contrast today. So knowledge, in their case, may indeed be correct. It may indeed be biblically accurate. If you ask a question is, and we'll go back to our silly example, is kissing sin? Well, the answer has to be no, right? No, assuming you're not married and kissing somebody else. Let's just, like, let's frame that a little better just in case, right? Jeff said so. No. So, all right. So, assuming <laughs> you're a person who can make that decision, you're of age and agency of your body, you're, you're single, you're in, within control of yourself and your emotions and your passions, and, and you kiss someone, okay, fine, right? That's not inherently sinful, what it can lead to is. How long you kiss may be, right? Those things are different. So knowledge, well, kissing's not sin. That's knowledge, and that's biblically accurate. But that's not the end of the story. Does that make sense? That's where Paul's at right here as he writes this. But he contrasts this with, but love builds up. Okay, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so I want to I want to begin, really, with kind of a gospel framework or a gospel uh, foundation for this. So in simple terms, we say this every week, the gospel is this, that God created you, designed you, loves you. God made you to be a certain way, right, to live a specific way. We short form that specific way as being a worshiper of God. It doesn't mean we walk around singing the songs and that Stephanie graciously led us in today as half our, half our worship team is, and our leaders are up in the men's retreat. Uh, it's not just when we're singing your songs, but that our lives should bring glory to God, right? That how we live ought to point Godward, for lack of better terms, right? That we, our lives should show God to the world, the character of God, the nature of God, the attributes of God. We should live that out. We should be worshipers of God. Our lives should ascribe worth to God. But sin entered into human history and broke that. It separated us from God, breaking us inside, right? And so we're all born not only in a sinful world that's broken, but we're also born sinful people that are broken, right? And, and this separation between us and God is not small, right? That it's, it's not something we can just walk back. In fact, it is something that we cannot walk back. It, it is to regain holiness is not within our capacity to do. We're not capable of returning to perfect worship of God on our own. In fact, there is nothing we can do to even move in that direction. And so God, knowing that, who God could have rightfully just said, your choice, you made your decision, live with it, or die with it, or whatever, right? But instead, God in mercy and love and grace and benevolence said, I'm going to come and rescue you. You can't work your way to me, but I can come to you. And so the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God became human flesh. Jesus condescended to humanity and lived as we are called to live, always bringing glory to God, lived sinlessly, lived perfectly bringing glory to God, and then was betrayed and suffered and died on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. And so as he does that, our, our sin is covered, and now the thing that separates us from God is, given, is taken away. We can be back in, in connection and community with God, and then Jesus resurrects from the grave to give us the ability to live in new ways. He gives us literally new life in the resurrection, and that in that, we are empowered to live for him. To come to faith, we typically look at that verse in Acts 2.38, where Peter tells, after preaching the first gospel in the church, he tells the crowd around him, we're asking, well, what must we do then to be saved? What must we do 
for that. And he says, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, right? You'll be given the very Spirit of God to live within you, to lead you, to guide you, and that all we do needs to be Spirit-led, if you will. So this needs to be the Spirit, not Jeff, right? When we talk about discipleship of your family, right? I can't just be John and his giftedness discipling his children. It, it must be the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. All, the, all of the gospel is a work of the Spirit, right? And so when we live that way, when we live empowered by God, led by God, then we live influenced by the Holy Spirit. We live, and it pleases God. Now we're back to living that life of worship. So we're living because God loved us. We, in return, begin to love him and love others. So Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, there was nothing really lovable about you or me, God loved us, right? When, there was, when we were unlovable people, God still loved us and gave his son for us. Christ died for us. In Matthew, it says this, and a question is being asked to Jesus. It says this, teacher, which, which is talking to Jesus, which is, the great com what is the, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the live as a worshiper of God, right? He says, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's inherent in the gospel that we would live loving God and loving our neighbor, loving one another, right? And then we're given some, some further things by Jesus later, like some specific love one another's in relationship to members of the church and loving the lost people that need the gospel, things like that. But it summarizes, Jesus gives us this just simple summary, love God, love your neighbor, right? And your neighbor's just anybody God puts in your path, really. It's, it's not like, yes, across the street, yes, right and left, but does my caddy corner neighbor, does he count? It's anybody God puts in your path, right? Love your fellow human, right? Put others before yourself, and that's what Paul is writing about today. So verse, back in 1 Corinthians verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, notice he's quoting them again, an idol has no real existence, and that there is, note the quote again, there is no God but one. For all there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, notice the lowercase g, gods is synonymous with like idols, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Again, quoted. And so here's the idea. He's quoting the Corinthians letter back to them to give definition and answer to them. And so it's a five-year-old church with lots of conversion, all people coming from outside of Christianity into Christianity, from worshiping many idols or polytheism, many gods, to finding and believing there is one true God who created everything. If you want to look back in like Acts 17, Paul goes into Athens or into Mars Hill, the Areopagus, depending on which translation you read. And he, he notices that there's all these idols, these, these pedestals with idols on them, and there's this one to this thing, and this one to this thing, and this one to fertility, and this one to war, and this one to blessing, and this one to this. And, and then he sees this little pillar, and it's empty. And it says, to the unknown God. And what they had done is they're so polytheistic, there's so many forms of worship there, that they actually leave an empty one, like, in case we miss something, that. Paul uses that to his advantage. He says, let me tell you about the God who created everything, who's not made with human hands, right? And he, and he leans into the gospel that way. And it's a similar gospel that Paul shares here in Corinth where he says, let me teach you about the God who created everything. All these made by human hands are not gods at all. I was reading through Isaiah recently uh, when we were in the what is idolatry in the catechism and there's this point through in Isaiah, and he's like, how do you take a piece of wood, and you take this section over here, and you make it a bowl? And then you take this section here, and you chop it up for firewood, and then you take this section here, and you carve it into an idol, and set it somewhere, and worship it. How is that not all the same wood that you eat out of just burned? Why would you worship that? He says, tell that idol to tell you the future. He said, never mind. Have that idol tell you the past. 
That's Isaiah's sarcasm. See, it's a spiritual gift to be sarcastic, right? <laughs> he says they can't. Though they have eyes, they can't see. They have ears, they can't hear. They cannot hear in you. But God alone, right? And so Paul's kind of reiterating that. And so they're all converting from outside of this into worshiping God alone. And so you can understand there's some barriers for them. Well, do I go to this wedding that's in that false idol temple, right? Should I eat this meat that was sacrificed outside and then sent off to the market? I don't know if this meat was offered to an idol when I bought it. I don't know. So they're having issues in a sense in their immaturity or in their unknowing yet. Some are struggling the others are saying, listen, those, those idols are not gods at all. And so who cares what happened? But they're using, they're correct biblically. They're little things of wood or gold. or They're not gods, right? And so he, they're, they're correct in that. But you've got to back up and be the younger believer, the more or the less mature believer, less learned believer. And they're struggling as they come out of this way of life. So their issue of conscience is this. Can a Christian eat meat that was sacrificed to a false idol if they don't know it was offered that way or if, they, or if it may have been? Can a Christian attend a banquet, a wedding, or something else in a place where false gods are worshipped without them sinning? It's like looking back at last week's message where we talked about a variety of situations. Marriage, divorce, singleness, engagement, the ways that we can fall into different sins and do different things there. Imagine someone from chapter 7 is to get married, but they have no business getting married. Right? And that could be a man and a woman. It could be two men. It could be whatever. Right? The question becomes, should we attend that wedding? That's a more modern-day version of it. Right? Should we participate? By participating, by, by attending, are we, are we giving approval to her? Are we passively saying that, or are we not? That's actually an issue of conscience, of our level and engagement with it. So verse 6 says this, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. We're all things and through whom we exist. This feels like a, a bit of a confession or catechism language. And at different places where you see Paul write, you'll recognize he repeats some things. And this is kind of like I say some things over and over. There's a unique language that you'd hear some things over and over again. And, and Paul would do that with the churches. He would use some of these things and teach them. And, and he would catechize them, literally, like we do a catechism. And, he, and there's creeds or confessions, statements of biblical truth. And you can, he kind of leans into one right here. Like, you know, I've always said this, Right? There is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You know, he's, he's re that language is just so concise and repeatable that he would use this to teach them. And so he's kind of quoting himself back to them like, listen, remember what I taught you. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Knowledge we're calling correct biblical understanding, right? But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So weak conscience here is defined as either they're uncomfortable with it because they don't know, right? Or they think something is sin, whether it is or is not, right? They're struggling with it. I'll give you a couple modern-day examples. I think the, the clearest modern-day issue of conscience the church wrestles with or that people within the church wrestle with is consumption of alcohol, right? So is it by nature sin to drink alcohol? Well, it can't be, right? Communion was started with wine, right? Like, so there's something there, but then clearly there's lines. Uh, so drunkenness, which everybody tends to define differently. Well, let's talk about impairment because I think it's a better way to look at it, but the biblical term is drunkenness, right? So to drink until you're impaired or making different decisions or decisions in a different way, clearly we're moving towards sin, right? Sin's out here, not sin. There's some, where should we be in here? So there's, there's a couple things. So some people are unclear about this. 
So their conscience is not clear. So they don't drink at all, which is better than, I don't know, so I'll drink as much as I want, right? That's a better answer, right? Some people come to faith and they've been alcoholics or struggle with addiction. And alcohol to them would be a compromise or leading them back into an area they should not be. Or they're sober, they're just recently sober, going to a bar is a bad idea. I'm not sold that <laughs> going to a bar is a good idea in a lot of circumstances, but you can see the issue of conscience, right? It's protecting, guarding yourself as well as others. And so we can see that there, there are a lot of issues of conscience. Um, alcohol is one of them. Physical boundaries before marriage, we've talked about that. Um, uh, work days, right? Should every Christian take every Sunday off? Well, here's the clear command, right? That we are called to give a day to God, right? Can that day be Wednesday or can, does that day have to be Sunday? Like people are kind of all over the map. We know what's clearly called for us to do. We know what is historic tradition for the church that we meet on what we call the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave, the day that Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit descended on the church, Sundays, right? And so that's an issue of conscience. War is another one. Can you serve in the military and on purpose kill people? Well, the Bible has what we call the just war theory, like there is a time and a place for war, but maybe, you're, maybe your conscience is not there. Right? And so there is, even in America, when there was a draft, there's a religious exemption. Right? And so because some people can't do that, their conscience is not clear. So we have issues of conscience in the church. There's bunches of them. Right? So back to verse 7, let's reread that. So however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all have a clear biblical answer for this question. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God, nor are we, are, are we are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. So here's his actual biblical answer. It doesn't matter if you eat it or don't in a, in a high-level sense. He's going to give some exceptions. We're going to look at one of them today, one of them next week. This is a this is an issue that spans three chapters. We're going to cut them in half, do part one, part two. So Paul here says food is what we'll call amoral or neutral, like a dollar bill, right, or money. Has no moral value to it, right? You can use it to bless someone and feed someone who cannot eat. You can use it for sin. You can use it to hurt someone. You can, there's a lot of ways to use money. Money doesn't have a moral value to itself. It's amoral. It's neutral. It's the user of, right? That would be the, the Second Amendment argument, that the gun itself is not inherently evil, it's the person, right? Same idea, right? Also, another issue of conscience. So the food here has no positive or negative benefit. That's what Paul is telling them. And so he's saying it's an, it's an issue of conscience. So if someone cannot do that without sinning or compromising what they believe, then for them it is sin, functionally, right? Now, here's where it's more important. See, now he's going to talk about the person who has a, a, a good, true, biblical answer and does not believe it's sin. He's also going to speak to them. So verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, so the weak here is the weak conscience. This is not a put-down about a person. So if you're here and you're on one side of the conversation where you're like, okay, never drink ever, that's okay. It's, it's not a, a, a negative term or a denigrating term. It's talking about a weak conscience where you would not be comfortable over here. Even if the Bible allowed for it, you feel like being over here is better for you, and that's okay, right? That may be because of your background. It could be because you've struggled with, we'll use alcohol, because you've struggled with alcohol. Maybe because you grew up in a house where people were drunks and you've never had a drop of alcohol and don't ever want to. Fine right? Like, that's good. You should set strong boundaries. If the church set stronger boundaries in their lives today, we'd all be better off. And so he's looking then at those who, without sin, or believe that they can do these things without sin. Now, he's going to challenge a part of that, but he's saying, 
Do not let this liberty or this you can get the right answer part out of it. Don't let that be a stumbling block to other people. Don't let your belief, your liberty, your right trip other people up. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, again, like a correct biblical answer, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? So will the other person not be encouraged to do it? That's what he's saying. If his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. Right? So if you're asserting your liberty around people who's got a, who have an issue of conscience, are you not encouraging them to violate their conscience? And I would say this, it's, it's more important in this moment to consider their conscience than the black, white, right, wrong answer of it all. Are you with me? Especially when you don't know why they arrive here. Does that make sense? So the, the outcome of your liberty on others matters. Remember, the, op- the, the two things we're talking about, knowledge, a correct biblical understanding, they might be right. They might be right about their answer. Who knows, right? However, love is the other thing we're talking about. We're defining that today by putting others before ourselves. And we're, we're doing so in light of loving God who loved us first. So when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love came first. We respond to God. We love God. And because we love God, we love others. We put others before ourselves. Verse 11 is, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Listen to this. This is strong language. The brother for whom Christ died. So your liberty is destroying your brother or sister for whom Christ gave his life. Pretty strong language. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. My wife and I, we've been married, uh, we're talking about May will be 25 years. So we're headed that direction. One of the things I've learned in marriage, there's many, mostly by making mistakes I've learned, but uh, you can be right and still be wrong, right? Like you can be factually correct and a jerk. I'm pointing at me. This is not about Lisa. She's a saint. She's watching us right now, so... No texting, all right? So, uh, right? You can be right and still be wrong. You with me? That's what he's saying. You might biblically be correct. You're wrong. You're sinning because you're using that in a way that is affecting others. You're not putting other people before yourselves. So therefore, you're sinning and you're affecting someone Christ gave his life for. Right? That reshapes the narrative for us, right? A minute ago, it was just somebody who was wrong. Now it's somebody who Jesus died for. You're like, okay, now there's a weight to it, right? And again, maybe they're not wrong. Maybe in this area, there's two correct answers. Another thing I've learned in marriage, by the way. Thank you, Lisa. Okay, so verse 11. (laughs) And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. I just want you to hear the weight of that. By doing this, by asserting your liberty, you're sinning against Jesus. That's heavy, right? So I'm going to put this note up. You can be right and still be wrong. We can just put lessons from just marriage. Even if you're biblically allowed to do something, your liberty and freedom can be used wrongly and ultimately become the sin of not putting others first. You can be factually correct. And listen, I'm not saying I'm always factually correct in, in this story. I'm just saying... You can be right and still be wrong, right? You might have some data that's accurate. You might have a verse that can back you up, but that does not mean you're right in the way you're living it out, right? That's important to us. Verse 13, therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the conclusion he comes to is I will not make my brother, I'll, I'll stop eating meat rather than struggle him, right? Rather than tempt him or, or violate his conscience or push him into an area where he maybe should not go. If you used to worship in that temple and your former way of life is there and your friends and your family are there and you came to Christ, maybe going back there for a wedding is a bad idea. Right? There's different answers to this. Remember from verse 1 though, right? Love builds up. 
Your job is to love and to build up the people around you, especially remember the context of this letter is he's writing to the members of the church, the formal people who are formerly members, belong, have covenanted together. He's writing to them. He's not writing to the guests that showed up for the first time that day or second time that day. He's writing to the people because that's who's been having the struggle. Those who are committed to one another should be building one another up. They should be loving one another. They should be putting one another before themselves. <clears throat> Chapter 9, verse 1. Paul's going to use himself here as a metaphor or an example of what he's teaching them. So verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. Here's what he's talking about. His apostolic authority, he started the church, right? He literally was converted by Jesus himself and then is sent out into these areas. And he's the one that began this church. He's like, my apostleship for sure is legit here. You know me, right? <clears throat> to others, if I'm not apostle, verse 2, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The proof is in their conversion in their church. <clears throat> Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Sorry, I've been speaking all weekend at the men's retreat and breathing in smoke from the fire pit, so my throat's a little jacked, so forgive me today. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we, meaning apostles, and he's really talking about him and Barnabas who were there in Corinth, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's not talking about meat and alcohol here. He's talking about it costs money to eat and drink. That'll become apparent in just a minute. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, meaning James and Cephas, which is Peter, right? So same thing here. It's not about celibacy. It's about the cost of being married and having a family. Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? You can see how he gets to that now. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So Paul's making the case that he and Barnabas, when they were in Corinth, deserved to be paid by the ministry they were doing, right? My job here, full-time, as, as the pastor here at the church, as the lead pastor, that's how I, I, I make a living because of your giving, right? That, I, that's what he's saying. Don't I have that right? The answer is yes. It's a rhetorical yes, right? Yes, I do. Does a soldier serve at his own expense? Does a shepherd not at least get some of the milk, right? That's what he's asking. <clears throat> verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? He's talking about the law. Notice it's capitalized. He's quoting the Old Testament. It says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for us? So the, the idea, right, you shouldn't restrain the ox while making it work, right? Should restrain, he's talking about the pastor or the apostle, the, the church planter, right? Shouldn't restrain them by not paying them. You should... Let them do their job. That's what he's talking about. Now, again, his spiritual gift of sarcasm. Is it for oxen that the God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? He was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He says, do you think God wrote not to muzzle the ox to tread out the, when it treads out the grain? Do you think he just wrote it for the ox? It's true for the ox, but he's making the case isn't or are, are not those who advance the gospel, take the gospel into new areas, or to settle, you know, to spend time with the church to build up the gospel in a local community, in a local body, in a local church? Should you muzzle them, or should you not make them free to do their job? Right? Within reason, obviously. And he's saying, so aren't humans more important than the oxes, and then the gospel more important work than plowing, right? Verse 11, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Right, so if we did gospel work, shouldn't we have been paid for it? Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? The people that are pastoring the church now, that are, that are caring for the Corinthian church, are vocationally caring for the Corinthian church. They're being paid to do so. That's what he's talking about. Nevertheless, Paul says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, listen, when we were among you, we didn't take a dime from you. Barnabas and I worked the whole time, even though it would have been our right to have created an income here. Just as you pay someone now, you 
we had the right to be paid. Do, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take a wife and have a family? He said, we had that right, but we didn't take it. And then he gives why. We wanted to put zero obstacles in the way of the gospel. He says, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So we go back to Jesus' words, right? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it could have been an obstacle, and we gotta, you go, got to go back to the culture in Corinth and chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, we we're talking about that uh, well-spoken uh, public speakers, rhetoricians, I guess what they're called. But anyhow, people that spoke for a living who were really smart and delivered in a really good way often then made an income from that. Some of those speakers are the ones that are kind of polluting and, and creating some of the problems that we dealt with in the first few chapters, right? These skilled orators with great flair and, and, and delivery and seem very wise, they were messing up the church, but they were doing it for money. So the smarter and better and funnier, brighter, more wise, whatever, the better they did, the more they made. And Paul's saying, listen, we could have done that, but we didn't want to be like them. We wanted to be distinct and different. So we didn't take a dime from you, though it would have been our right. We didn't want to be a stumbling block. We didn't want to be an obstacle for the gospel. So here's a note for you. Love puts others before ourselves. Christians should live like Jesus by putting others before ourselves. Love is greater than our freedom or liberty, and love calls us to deny ourselves. Let me just kind of walk this out with Jesus for a minute. So Jesus, who is creator God, yes, the second person of the Trinity, the very word of God, the word spoken and creation became, right? Jesus, who is God, becomes human. That's a pretty big sacrifice all in itself, right? To condescend to being human when you're God, right? And then to be born into a family of poverty and to grow up and struggle, to know what it is to be hungry, angry, lonely, tired, whatever it is. He endured all that, and then he lived a life filled with temptations like we do, except sinlessly. And then he was betrayed by a close friend. He was falsely accused, falsely convicted, handed over to Roman guards who beat him and mocked him and spit on him and then took him to the cross where he died a painful death. In fact, the word, I was going to say, an excruciating death. The word excruciating actually means from the cross, excrucis. That the cross was so painful, it made up a new word, like pain from the cross, like that kind of pain. Jesus put you before himself. He put me before himself in order to do that. And so then he calls us to live like him, putting others before ourselves. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple do those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial alterings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's not really clear if he's talking about Jewish temple or the idolatrous temples, but the, the truth is true in both cases. They all make it a living that way. Verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's like, an offering is not coming around at the end of my message, Right? I'd never done that. I'm not going to do it now. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Again, I'm telling you, sarcasm is his gift, right? I'd rather die than let you say, oh, well, we gave you money. I love that answer, right? There's no way I'm going to let you guys hold that against me. So we did it for free. Barnabas and I both never took a dime. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's like, listen, I can't help but preach the gospel. It's, my, it's what God has commanded me to do. So whether it's a sacrifice or whether it's not, that's what I'm going to do. Verse 17, for I will do this of my own will. For if I do this, excuse me, of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Even if I don't want to share the gospel with you, he says, I'm entrusted with the gospel to give you. God has called me to do this, so like it or don't like it, I need to do it. Verse 18, what then is my reward? <clears throat> that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So here's what Paul's talking about. 
He has a real, biblically true right to create an income from his preaching of the gospel and shepherding and pastoring this church when he was there with Barnabas, right? Just like someone else might biblically have the right to attend a gathering in that temple and not be violating their conscience and not be sinning. But he's telling them that you might be able to do that, but the other person who's struggling might not be able to. So why don't you lay down your right, lay down what may be true for you, not that, and I don't mean subjective truth like we talk about in culture today, oh, just live my truth. No. It's true, but it's not the right answer for others. And he says, so lay down your right answer. Like we said, you can be right and still be wrong. He says, you may be right, but you're living wrong. He says, I could have been right to have created an income, but we didn't do that. Because it would have been wrong for us. We would have been an obstacle. We would have looked like all the other public speakers that came through here, sophists and people who did their thing to create an income. We would have looked just like one of them. Modern day, another snake oil salesman just trying to make a buck. He says, I didn't want to get in the way of the gospel. And Barnabas didn't either, so we didn't take anything. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, there's my freedom, liberty, right? I have made myself a servant to all, that's putting others before himself, that I might win more of them. That I might see more people come to Christ, come to faith. To the Jews I became as a Jew. When the Jews were around or when I was with them, I didn't eat bacon, right? I didn't do what they don't do, so I wouldn't get in the way of the gospel. He says, I did this in order to win Jews. To those under the law, still meaning Jews, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So I didn't work on the Sabbath, even though I could have. I didn't. I didn't eat bacon. And that's a sacrifice, right? Could have, but didn't. Bacon. We like bacon. To those outside the law, I became one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So when I was around pagan people who ate bacon, I ate bacon. They had a drink, I had a drink with them. But I didn't, buy, I didn't sin, he says. I didn't violate God's law, but I lived among those outside of God's law in a way that didn't get in the way of the gospel, right? That's not calling you to do anything particular. It's just saying, I lived this way when I was over here, but I didn't sin. I lived this way over here, but I didn't sin. I lived there so I could be the gospel and not be a hindrance to the gospel, Verse 22, to the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Listen to this last line. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I lay down my liberties. I lay down my rights. I lay down, look, I can show you this verse that shows you this. He says, I lay all that down so I'm not in the way so that all we've got is is the gospel. So that all we have as we talk about Jesus and his desire to transform your lives, his desire to reconcile you to the God who created you. He says, so I didn't let those things get in the way. Though I have the right to live in either way or right here, I surrendered all that for the sake of the gospel. That I might see people come to faith. And when I see people come to faith, I might celebrate that in them. He says, because that's a bigger win than bacon. Though we love bacon, that's a bigger win. Seeing people come to Christ is a bigger win. He says, so I put that away. He said, I live like them so I can share Christ to them. And I do it without compromise. So what is your takeaway today? What are some applications you will make considering this message of being right versus being loving? So myself, where am I sacrificing or putting others first to see the gospel go forward. That's a question I need to ask myself. Where And, and I find myself, I'll give you, in fact, I'll give you my, here's my takeaway. Uh, I've been praying for my mom and my stepdad to come to faith, but I need to carve some space out of my schedule to go see my mom. So it was a little over an hour away, right? I will make time to go to a football game tomorrow night, but I haven't made time to go see her. That's just honest, Right? So I'll talk to her on the phone, I'll pray for her, but I'm not being strategic about spending time with her and sharing the gospel with her. Not like I never see her, but I'm not being intentional. Where can I sacrifice for the sake of the gospel for my mom? There's my takeaway for today. 
Mature believers, if you've been around Jesus for a while, listen, length of time does not always equal mature, but if you've grown in your faith, if you're a mature believer, where do you love others and put their needs above your own so that the gospel goes forward? Seems like, and this is not always true, this is probably a truism, but not a 100%, the longer we live in our faith, the more set in our ways we tend to be. The more we want things our way. So where are we putting others before ourselves? If you're new to the faith, learning what is right and wrong biblically takes time and investment in your faith. You don't come to Jesus just knowing what's right or wrong, right? Avoid things that lead you towards wrong decisions and be discipled by loving older believers that will put your needs above their own. Right? It takes time and energy to grow in our faith. It's not just intuitive. You don't just get it by osmosis. You don't just go with, well, I think this is good. I don't think this is good. Right? So seek that. Grow in that. Avoid things that lead you in wrong directions. Again, in issues of conscience, if this is sin, don't draw your line right here. Draw your line back here. Way better for you. If you are here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't wake up every day, with Jesus is first on your list to seek him as a person and what he would have you do. Hear this, that he loved you so much that he gave his life for you. That he sacrificed everything to rescue you from you. To reconcile you to the creator who loves you, to God who loves you. That he sacrificed everything to that end. And, and just start by giving of yourself to Jesus. If you want to talk about that, See me after service. I would love to have that conversation with you. Parents with kids, parents, do you teach your kids not only right from wrong, but where freedom and liberty can lead to sin, not just make rules for them? You teach them that, okay, maybe sin is out here, but way back here is healthy, right? How do we do this? Why is this a problem? Do we just give them hard, fast rules, or do we teach them of how to create those boundaries in our lives for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of loving God. Loving God, loving others. So take some time, circle up wherever you are, two, three, four people at the most, and let's just take a couple minutes, and what is your takeaway? What is something you want to apply to your life this week?